Trollodren, Legends and Lore. Episode 11, Vakar. Well, hello and welcome to Trollodon Legends and Lore. I'm Chad Corey, and in this episode we'll be talking about probably one of the more well-known individuals in Titanic and even uh, Trollodron history, I guess. But in keeping with how I've been presenting these so far in this miniseries for this podcast, I am not going to get into every single detail and make an exhaustive presentation because this character has a lot of material I am also not going to do that because there are some things that will be forthcoming in upcoming books, both in this present series, the Wizard King Trilogy, and in stuff that follows. I don't want to reveal everything and spoil the story, so to speak, and also I want to have it come out the right way with the right story, if that makes sense. But you're still going to get a nice summary and a basic introduction and understanding of who Vakar is and why he is so important, not just in the Titanic history, but also all of cosmic and Trollodrone history as well. But I want to take a quick moment and thank everyone who participated in the events, whether they're digital or in person, or if you purchased the book or read the book. I I really do appreciate it. Again, I'm talking about Return of the Wizard King, which came out in September, and we just got wrapping up now a tour in uh, September and October of, of this year. And that was a fun time. I thought I had a good time. Hopefully you guys did too. Definitely learned some things I'll be incorporating into the next uh, tour, which will be next year. And I definitely, I think, learned a lot of things about book promotion that I'll be able to incorporate next time into the process. But in the meantime, again, thank you so much for all your help, your support, picking up books, ordering books, whatever you were able to do was very much appreciated. Obviously, it was a what I think would be a success, but I, hopefully my publisher does too. And we're able to generate some more interest to keep some more titles forthcoming, whether it might be graphic novels, individual short stories, standalone prose novels, whatever we got coming out in the pike. I'd, I'd like to keep this thing going, keep the stories coming, and keep you guys entertained and informed with this growing fantasy world setting. So again, thanks so much for your support and help. I really do appreciate it. And with that said, let's continue into the rest of this episode. And we'll continue by backing up a little bit into last episode, episode 10, talking about what happened with Vakar. Now, Vakar was the third son of Endurus, who was trying to continually push his empire to the largest extent possible and just continuing to fight and, and kill things and conquer, and that got kind of old after a while with the population. The schisms and divisions and fights and revolts and things had to be put down which aggravated Endurus and made him do some decision-making that brought his sons closer into positions of grooming for leadership, although he only really took a serious eye to Nidal, who was his eldest son. And they would go off together and fight, leaving the two other sons, Agri and Vicar, on Thangaria to live their lives, basically, and, and do their own thing. Although they were kept, you know, I was kept on them, but it wasn't like they were strictly under house arrest or anything. They were just... There were some things being watched and stuff, but they weren't really being groomed that strictly or strongly for anything of note yet, although Endurus did have some ideas and plans we talked about in previous episodes. He was looking at some possible angles he could use them for. 
but he would never get that opportunity, unfortunately, or fortunately, however you look at it, because he would be killed in a battle when his son Angry took over as emperor for a very uh, short stint there and tried to rule in his stead and tried to rule his own empire. Through various factions, he was able to get his own revolt going and he's able to kind of take control for it for a brief span of time, but enough to generate enough interest from his father and his brother to come in and put a stop to it and basically have a fight going on, another war, which did not really endear anyone to anyone on either side because it caused more issues with everybody involved who really didn't want another imperial dynastic fight going on. They just wanted to be done with it and move on with their lives. But unfortunately, they had more fighting to do. And in that fighting, we saw from last episode, Nidal became king, or excuse me, emperor of the new empire after his father, Indurus, was killed in battle. And Angry fled. Now, as Angry fled, Nidal, of course, secured the throne as much as he could. Then he went after him. He wanted to put this thing to bed. And he thought he was able to do so securely, knowing that Vicar was not interested in taking the throne or ruling after him because he's long been seen as a titan lord, a scholarly kind of person, not really given uh, one to thoughts of conquest or imperial ambitions or things like that. He didn't really seem as the sort that anyone was really concerned with at all. And that was maybe to his benefit, obviously to some extent, but maybe also to Nidal's deprimate because that would prove his undoing in the end, and which we'll see in just a moment here. But he went off to fight with Agri, and uh, while the two were fighting, Fakar saw it as the perfect opportunity to take advantage of the Bedlam and put himself in place of his brother as emperor. And that might come as a shock to some people. Why, if he's not interested in the, in the throne, would he become the emperor? Well, he saw things differently. He was looking at it from his background as a Titan Lord. And again, just a little background in the Titan Lords. Again, we mentioned them earlier with the episode in Endurus. But these were the Titans who were masters of a particular element of the cosmos. And again, there are 16 cosmic elements. If you want to know what they are, you can go back to another episode and learn about how they break down and what they work out and what they do and how they function and all that fun stuff. Him, what made Vicar unique was that he was a Titan Lord who had mastered two different elements. That had never been done before. They, they had hardened up trying figuring out how to do one, let alone trying to figure out how to do two. And he was able to do that. So he was kind of a progeny in that sense and just kind of an amazing figure and, and that mystical level, if you will. He, the two that in particular he, he had an interest in also were very interesting because they would play a part in what he was to do. That was space and time. And through the ability of space and time and the mastery of space and time, he was able to figure out and see a, a larger picture. He, he saw the endless cycle of what was going on. He was, saw that continuing because he didn't, he didn't see an end to what they were trying to do with the, their empire. They were expanding it, but they always were kind of more of an acicular nature. And ultimately, what he pulled back from the big picture, he said they really couldn't ever advance farther than where they are now because of the cosmic entities. The only way to get free of this secular pattern, even just get to their furthest possible potential as a, as a race, as titans, was to get rid of the cosmic entities. They were seen as something of a boot keeping them down. And they were the cap hindering them from going any further, the glass ceiling, if you will, that needed to be broken. And Vicar did not like the idea of being under someone or someone being more powerful than him dictating the rules of, of reality and existence. 
And the more he studied the cosmic elements, the greater he had an inkling or understanding that in order to free themselves from the cosmic entities, they had to actually use the cosmos itself and find a way to tap into and ultimately use against their creators, its creators, excuse me, you know, Nolan and Tajani, to turn the tables and take their rightful place. The Titans take their rightful place as the ultimate race and power in the cosmos. That's, that was his goal. And in order to achieve that goal, he needed to have the throne because he needed to have complete control of the Empire and the Titan race to have the freedom and the flexibility and the resources in order to incorporate everything he wanted to do and accomplish with that plan. And so obviously he had a different take on things, but he was certainly very ambitious, maybe even more so than any of his forefathers before him, and certainly more than Endurus, who didn't really see beyond the larger physical picture of, you know, acquiring more territory and conquering more peoples. But the challenge, of course, was always how to incorporate his plan. How did he put himself in the position of the throne? And that was never something he could get a clear picture on, although he had some inklings of what was going on. He also had the benefit of being able to study some of the Omnian scrolls, at least through the help of his, his girlfriend's later wife, Zora, who we'll talk about in the next episode. But he had an inkling and he had enough smarts to figure out this woman knows what she's talking about. Not only was she capable person who was a lady of time who could give him some added benefit to, to seeing how things played out. She also had a very strong inkling that the Omnian Scrolls were a very key element of what was needing to be done. And she thought this was the blueprint for him, for Carr, to take his strategy to the next level and take his emperorship and even the next level beyond that, take the whole cosmos. So she thought that was a blueprint to show them where what they could use for the key moments to, to interact and do things. Although she didn't have a she didn't understand everything, obviously, because no one did with the Omnian Scrolls until that even after the fact there was some you know ambiguity. People were like, oh, okay, that maybe that could be what's what it meant. But in general, she used it as a blueprint, like I said, to kind of help gear his strategy and stuff. But he also had a great understanding of what he wanted to do, which I'm not going to get into how that came about, because again that ties into some fun story elements later on we'll talk about. But he saw that the way to do what he wanted to do was to build a throne. And in order to get this throne, he needed to do some pretty heroic, amazing things in and of itself, which we're not going to get into in this episode. But by completing it, he discovered, or hypothesized at least, that he would be able to interact with and control the cosmos. And by doing so, he'd be able to in turn then be able to interact and control with the cosmic entities, basically demoting them or controlling them or even boxing them up or whatever he was thinking the best course of action was to take control over them or even destroy them and put themselves, the Titans, elevating them as the proper race and giving them the freedom to grow and develop to their fullest potential, unhindered by anything, anywhere. So that was the plan, that was the goal. And of course, he'd be the person to guide and direct their development as the ultimate Titan, the ultimate emperor, of course. So that was what he wanted to accomplish. That was what he wanted to do. And so he spent a lot of time doing this throne. And that allowed him the opportunity to be away from the capital and away from the more seditious talk and things in different circles, even though he was having some own seditious talks of his own, obviously, doing his own plan. But by being free from angry and not being in the same circles, he put himself in a position where he was seen as, just, oh, he's just studying. He's just trying to find new stuff. And he was. For the most part, he was studying. It was, was a legitimate excuse. 
but he was doing it for maybe a nefarious reason, as they found out later on. But it gave him the opportunity and time to put things together and to finally establish his throne. But of course, he didn't necessarily know when he was going to use the throne or how was the best way to do that. And they just happened to have the perfect opportunity presented to him when his brothers had their little tiff. And basically, by having Endurance dead, by having Nidal off fighting his brother off somewhere in the hinterlands of the planet, in the capital of Frida himself, he had complete and total access to the capital. He had complete and total access to a lot of the resources there that he wanted to take advantage of because he figured out that by putting it, he needed it to put it in the capital, his throne in the capital, and he needed to have it connected at that point in time and that specific geographical region for uh, certain reasons in order to give him the best connections and, and opportunities to succeed with his plan. And so now here he was. He had the perfect opportunity. He had the throne presented to him. Basically, you know, the throne room, I should say, unopposed. He could walk right in there and do whatever he wanted to do and make his plan work. He Perfect opportunity. So obviously he didn't waste any time. What he did is he decided to say that he made this throne for his brother's coronation, for his in celebration of his brother's coronation as a new emperor. And of course, no one really thought anything of, oh, that's nice, you're a brother, okay, you made a nice throne, okay, great, that's wonderful, bring it in, you know. So they brought it in, they escorted him in, they helped him set it up, everything, no one, no one suspected anything until he sat down. And when he did, he connected with the cosmic entities and the cosmos itself. But what he didn't realize was he miscalculated. He didn't realize that he wasn't able to connect with the cosmic entities because he was connecting with the cosmos instead. And that was okay on one level, but it wasn't on the other because now he was connected to the cosmos and he made himself basically the focal point of the cosmos. And by so doing, he tied himself to the throne. He couldn't leave the throne. If he tried to leave the throne, it would basically be destruction of the cosmos. And he realized very quickly the folly of what he did. He really miscalculated on, on a level that he didn't even think was possible. And so not only was he still under the thumb of the cosmic entities, but he now was tied a prisoner of his throne to the cosmos. He had to basically stay on the throne in order to keep the cosmos going. And that was not, that was not good for him. So he was a prisoner of his own ambition. But he didn't waste any time in trying to make the best of the situation by declaring himself the eternal emperor and actually elevating himself to a god, the first god of the cosmos. Basically, he had almost unlimited power. He was just a few steps below the cosmic entities, although he would try and raise himself higher than that. We'll get into more about that, like I said, in future stories and things. You can check that out. But he was a very, very powerful being and basically unopposed. And at this point now, he realized he could probably be immortal. So he was the eternal emperor, and he would have an eternal empire, and he would work tirelessly to undo the mistakes of what he'd put into the throne and still conquer the cosmic entities and achieve his plans and his ambitions. But of course, that didn't sit well with his two brothers in the field who were at each other's throats, and they decided to quickly put the hatchet beside them and shake on an agreement to go after their brother and then resume their fight afterwards, basically winner-take-all. And they didn't get very far, though. As, as Vakar saw them approaching the capital, he unleashed the full brunt of his new power, and they and their armies and anyone who sided with them were basically destroyed. 
So that was the end of that, and that was the establishment in the people's eyes of just how powerful this new god emperor was. And it didn't take long for people to fall in line and say, okay, you're going to be the, <laughs> the big guy, the big head honcho. And that was a quick turnaround and a, kind of a mini time of peace for him, for him to establish his rule and reign. Shortly after that, of course, he married Zora. She became his wife and his empress, and he elevated her to the first goddess of the empire and the first goddess of the cosmos. That's something that hasn't ever happened before. And she was unique in that she was the first god to be elevated or to come about without using the throne. And she was totally free and devoid of the throne as far as having to have direct access to it, to have access to her powers or do anything godlike. And that allowed her to become the right hand of a car, and she became his trusted advisor, lieutenant general, everything basically you could think of, advisor. She was basically his second in command, and she did a very good job at it, very well respected and feared throughout the empire and cosmos because of it. But she, like I said, she was the first goddess, and she has an episode all to herself, so we're not going to take a whole lot of time on her. We'll cover her story next episode. But in general, what she was doing was obviously studying the, the Omnian scrolls, and with her added benefits and insights from her newly elevated state, she was able to get some insight and information to Vakar, and she thought a revolt was coming. A revolt and a, a time against his throne being toppled was coming. And so she said he should preemptively do some stuff and strike out and things, and, and, but before that could happen, there was kind of an, uh, the, the revolt did come. And it looked like it was falling right into line with the Omnian Scroll, so he gave that more credence than ever before, and there was a battle. And through that battle, he basically established that he was the ultimate ruler and that the lords, the Titan Lords were under him because there was some dispute that some of the Titan Lords, especially Lords of Time and Space, or Time especially, realized, you know, if we can go back in time somehow and figure out a way to undo all this, we can stop this madness from happening. And Vicar wasn't going to have any of that. And so basically they disappeared for a short period of time, Lords of Time and Space. And they would come back later on again. I'm not going to get into all that specifics now because there's a story there, of course. But he basically took over with more so than ever before Vicar did and established himself as the undisputed ruler of not only Thangari and the Thangari Empire, but the cosmos as well, or at least as far as he saw it. He, would, he wouldn't really necessarily admit that the cosmic entities were still the big head honchos in charge, but he would say that, you know, he present at least that he was the, the ultimate power, the eternal emperor, and ultimately he should be worshipped and his wife worshipped as gods. And it began the imperial religion, which would later on transfer to their children, and it was the beginning of the Trolodrone pantheon. Two lasting effects of Akar's rule were pretty obvious and very powerful in their scope. The first is he would change the way death was handled because now he was a god and could do whatever he wanted for the most part. He didn't like the Nullic dispensation. He thought it was a very convenient way to to have an end to his enemies, especially after in light of his recent uh, battle or revolt that took place where he conquered all those people and such. He didn't think it right that his enemies could just die and that was the end of it. He wanted them to be punished for their transgressions. And so he established what was called the Vicaric Dispensation. And that would entail there being two places one could go when they died. Now again, these beings dying were only people that had a soul and a spirit. People that didn't have a spirit 
like animals and such or other you know creatures or constructs did not have this opportunity. He just made anyone that had a spirit basically immortal in the sense that they were spiritually immortal. And so they would go to either one of two places. They'd either go to the abyss where they'd be tortured for all eternity or they'd go to paradise as a reward for their service and loyalty to Vakar. And so obviously he wanted all his enemies and those that revolted against him to go to the abyss and be tortured. And that's what he accomplished. And that's what he did with this, this decree, this new dispensation. And that would remain in effect for the entirety of his reign all into the beginnings of the Trilodron Pantheon where it would be altered slightly to still allow for the, the abyss and the paradise option, but also now have options for the other gods and their domains to be a result of where someone who followed them or adhered to them and their teachings or, or support, supported them in life would go when they died. And that would become the modern version or the pantheonic dispensation of where things are with reality now in the afterlife on Trilodrim. But that was a long-lasting impact he had there and obviously caused some great distress and upset with the cosmic entities who did not like him messing around with their established order who had previously wanted just things to, to die and not come back. So they had to redo some things and tweak some stuff in the background, which again, I won't get into in this episode, but needless to say, it was a very powerful and, and ultimately cosmic changing event. The second thing that Vicar did was in how he ran the empire and basically how he ran the cosmos because he saw, again, the empire as being a cosmic one. And what he established with the lords of the Titan lords is he would have them run the various cosmic elements in his stead. He would give them a regent status. As long as they were loyal to him and did what he wanted to do, he would give them the rule of the various cosmic planes. And that's what they did. And they took over, and they, it was a win-win for them because they got to establish themselves in these planes and study their particular element close and up personal and just really, really in-depth more so than ever before. And Fakar would even help support them and encourage them on that. And they, in turn, would enforce his edicts and rules of the, the terrain and territory as they conquered and learned more of the area. They put it under the imperial heel, and they, they answerable only to Vicar. So it's kind of, again, a win-win sort of thing. He established kind of an ability or a upper ruling echelon for his global, or excuse me, his cosmic empire. And that, too, would have a very long-lasting effect. It's still in effect today, although now it's broken down into the pantheonic system where we see the various gods have their own little piece of the cosmic empire for themselves and rule it as they decide and as they see fit. But it was, at the time, a very powerful and uh, cosmic-changing concept that would have a major effect on how the pantheon would develop after his death, which will probably be a whole other series of episodes and stories later on. And so with that, I think I'll bring this episode to a close. Thanks again for your listening in. I really do appreciate it. And hopefully you're learning some fun, interesting things of the history and legends and lore of Trilodon, which might be of a benefit as you read the Wizard King trilogy or other books you might be picking up if you pick this series up later after those come out as well. Again, any questions, comments, concerns you have about the episode or podcast in general or information you're learning, please feel free to send me an email. It's just lore, L-O-R-E, at chadcorey.com. That's C-H-A-D-C-O-R-R-I-E dot com. And again, you can check out my website, chadcorey.com, for more information about the book, the world setting, or myself or anything else you might have an interest in in general. There's other podcasts on there as well you might find of interest. 
Next episode, we'll wrap up the year and this mini-series by talking about Vicar's maybe better half, Zora. See you then. This podcast is copyright Chad Corey. All rights reserved.